It's really easy to look at Jeff Bezos and others like him and demonize him for his wealth. But he didn't wake up one day a bazillionaire. He had an idea, he had a work ethic, and he invested a whole lot of time and effort in making Amazon what it is today. Successful people are built, they're not born. That's the message from one of those incredibly successful entrepreneurs, Tom Galisano, founder of Paychex. Do you want to know what his success formula is? Stick around because that's who I'm talking today. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review us when you're done and share the podcast with others so they can become their own best advocate too. And one more thing, I really have to apologize today. You know, I'm recording this during quarantine time and we're all needing to use some different technologies. Unfortunately, the, the sound for this one is not as great as we generally like it to be, but the message from Tom is so powerful that I'm gonna hope that you can forgive the cracks and bubbles. Have a great, safe day. Hi, I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert source, expert vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. And I'm thrilled to be talking today to Tom Galisano, entrepreneur, philanthropist, civic leader, former owner of the Buffalo Sabres hockey team, and the founder and chairman of the board of Paychex Inc., the largest provider of payroll and related services for small to medium-sized businesses. Tom's just published a fabulous new book called Built Not Born. It details the lessons he learned as he built Paychex from nothing to a multi-billion dollar company. He bought and sold other businesses. He mentored entrepreneurs of all types, and he chose carefully as he donated over $300 million to assorted charitable causes. His lessons for business people are actual lessons in life for everybody. Built Not Born is available on Amazon and wherever books are sold, and you can learn more about Tom and his work at TomGalisano.com. Tom, thank you for being here in this crazy period of time. My pleasure, Sarah, and it is a crazy time. It is, and in fact, you and I, we're, we've been struggling. We're saying everybody's working at home right now. We're trying to adapt to different different methods of technology, and I was having a hard time with this branding. This first time I've used this recording technology, and the phone line wasn't going through, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, oh, no, how am I going to get it through? But this actually, how many times in your life as a chairman and the founder and the leader of a building company did you have to deal with things like this? Oh, many times. Uh, I remember brownouts. I remember 9-11. I remember when we were uh, building in addition to our building and we lost our electricity on a Monday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning and our phone lines. And in the payroll processing business, Monday is your, almost your busiest day. And so it had to live through all kinds of those types of things. So as a leader, because this is something that I'm working through with my organization who is now all you know, working from home. But as a leader, as a, you know, whether you're a business leader or a family leader, how do you confront that, you know, addressing the issues, maintaining a sense of calm? You know, what, what, how did you work your way through those things? Well, maintaining the sense of calm is very, very important, except I remember during that one instance I just told you about getting excited and demanding action by the contractor was very, very, very important uh, because initially they uh, – weren't very reactive to our problem. So I got involved, I got very excited and very demanding, and it got results. So I guess it really depends on the circumstances and the situation. Most times, calm works, but when you're really in trouble, sometimes you gotta get really excited and go after it. Yeah, it's true, sometimes we had, um, we had a, a more moving warehouses and, and processing vendors years ago. This is and this was in the mid '80s, and the Mississippi River had flooded, and we couldn't get trucks across the river. <laughs> and, 
it took a whole lot of talking, coercion, rerouting, and everything else to be able to move all that, those materials. Yeah. Sometimes you got to be very creative too. You do, and again, right now, I think that is really it's really testing everybody's metal. Well, um, I so talked to the CEO of Paychex yesterday afternoon. We have approximately sixteen thousand employees. And right now we have 14,000 of them working at home wow. out of the 16,000 across the country. Uh, fortunately, our capability data processing-wise uh, is very proficient, and we're able to make this move, and the customers hardly notice the difference if they notice it at all. So uh, we're very fortunate in the way we designed our software so that we could process payrolls from anywhere. And uh, if you're a customer in Connecticut and a payroll specialist in Phoenix, Arizona can take your payroll and get it done efficiently and accurately. Right. Wow. So important. All the all the forethought to be able to have the infrastructure in place. Okay. Well, now that we diverted to talk about life as we know it, let's let's talk about built not born, um, which is really uh, you know I wanted to there there were so many great lessons in there as a leader and for entrepreneurs. I'm going to take the book that I read and give it actually to my my daughter who is um, you know starting out in the business world because I think it's a great primer and and overstate for everybody. Um, tell me about the title of the book. Um, where did that come from? Well, <clears throat> certainly Paychex was a company that was started with very meager resources. I think I had three thousand dollars in my bank account and. Two or three credit cards, and uh, we went through those resources very quickly. And then it was, you know, three or four years of uh, very uh, skinny uh, resources. I couldn't borrow money at banks very well. Of course, they don't loan money to new businesses. And I had to borrow money from family and so on and so forth. So it was real tight, went four years without a paycheck. Uh, but all during that period, I felt more and more confident about what we were doing because we were signing up clients. And having spent some years in the industry before I started Paychex, I was pretty confident that we had a product and a service that was going to make it go. So it was just a matter of keep pounding, keep going forward, and uh, eventually it would work out, and it did. And uh, after being in for four years, one day an individual walked into my office that uh, I used to work with at another company, and he says, look, Tom, it looks like Paychex is going to make it. He says, can I get involved? And I said, well, Phil, yeah. Uh, how would you like to be my partner in Buffalo, Albany, and Syracuse, upstate New York? And he said, it sounds like a good idea. So we went ahead with it. We formed a partnership, and Phil uh, began operating first in Syracuse and then Buffalo and Albany. A few months later, in a client of an employee or an employee of a client came into my office picking up his payroll, and he says, Tom, can I talk to you for a few minutes? I said, sure. He says, this is a great service. I'd like to go to another part of the country and start one. And I said, really? I said, I said, where did you want to go? He says, well, Miami, Florida. I said, gee, that's an interesting place. I said, Chuck, uh, I don't know you very well, and I don't know if I could be your partner at this point. He says, I don't want to be your partner, but I'll be your franchisee. Oh, that sounds like an interesting idea. You can pay me some money up front, and I'll help you get started, and you'll give me an ongoing revenue. So we put a contract together, and Chuck went off to Miami and got started. So after we got those two people going, I said, maybe this is a way to build a nationwide organization. So at that point on, I decided to go out and recruit people to go to other parts of the country. And after a four- or five-year period, 
I ended up with uh, 10 partners or 11 partners and six franchisees. All but one of them lived in Rochester, New York, and moved to another part of the country to start a similar paychecks operation. And that's how we got off the ground initially. So the interesting thing to me is I'm listening to you, you know, juxtaposing when was the when was I did not double check when it was started. Was it in the 1980s or so? 1971. 1971. Okay. So the the way the business is built, like it was bit by bit, and um, you know, adding these pieces on, being opportunistic, and growing it organically, if you will, versus a lot of these startups now where it's like zero to sixty. Um, with you know the way that that these you know things almost come up magically, and then suddenly they're getting IPO money or they're getting funding money, and there's suddenly these enormous things. Like if, if you were to build it today, would it have been different? And or the other side of it is these new businesses that are starting now. Do they have the same legs? Paychex has been you know a phenom for the last 50 years. Um, you know what? Where's well, that's an interesting question, Sarah, and actually there's two answers to it. You can, in the payroll processing business today, and I'll give you some information about the marketplace, if you add up all the payroll processors together in the United States of America, we only have altogether about 20% of the market using payroll processing services. That means the marketplace is still wide open. So today, even today, you get companies going in on the shoestring like I did, and they can eventually be successful. And you also have companies going the other route, as you just suggested, you know, raise that equity capital and plan for an IPO and all that type of thing. Uh, so it, work, it seems to work both ways in our industry, which I think makes us a little unique. Now, if you were starting a payroll processing company, the way you go about it will depend on your skill set and your resources. I mean, most people obviously would have to start on a shoestring and, and work yes. their way up. But there are organizations and people that have the uh, wherewithal to put a, cat, a large amount of capital together so they would stay losses until they get to a break-even or profitable point. So you work with a lot of entrepreneurs now. I mean, do you think that they've got the grit, you know, the, the world has gotten on such a fast cycle and younger generations who expect a much faster rate of feedback than than as old people. Um, do you think that the entrepreneurs of today have the grit to be able to build the businesses in the way, or has the whole business environment changed in that we just, it's a, it's a different cycling method? I'm very bullish on the entrepreneurs of today. I think they're far more aggressive. I think they're, uh, they're just as skilled, if not more skilled. Uh, I think the Internet has got a lot to do with that and a different way of marketing than there used to be marketing and sales. So I'm bullish on the entrepreneurs of America today. Um, I think they have the skills and the, and the perseverance capability that's necessary. I love it. All right. Let's talk about details. You know, you're, throughout the book, you could see your incredible attention to detail and even the things you were talking now about how you address the challenges. Um, talk about the importance of knowing the extreme inside-out details of your business, your competitors' businesses, your prospects' businesses, because that just came through so clearly throughout your book. Yeah. Uh, when I talk to potential entrepreneurs, when they come to me with their business plans, and, and we probably get three to five a week now, um, the quality that I think is very, very important is what I call industry knowledge. 
so many times entrepreneurs come to me with ideas. Uh, they sound very good on paper or in verbiage, actually, but the, the entrepreneur does not have industry knowledge. I think if you look at the success level of entrepreneurs, you'll find the most successful ones came out of the industry they, they uh, began operating in. Now, for example, I worked for a payroll processing company for two years as a salesperson and sales manager, and that's where I got the idea for paychecks because nobody was servicing the small end of the uh, employer base. Uh, our average client today has about 15 employees. Well, back in 1970, 1980, nobody was interested in that marketplace, but I had enough industry knowledge to know about what to do with the product and its pricing to make it affordable and desirable to small companies. So that's actually the first thing I look for when I talk to an entrepreneur or a potential entrepreneur. Do they have industry knowledge? Do they really know what they're talking about? And do they have the right experience? Uh, to me, that's number number one criteria. Yeah, it's so funny. I you know I think that understanding all the details is so important, whether in business or in personal life. You know that we have a lot of people listening to us, just even in their personal lives, the importance of doing your homework and understanding um, the details of how your house works or you know what you know what's happening in your family or your car like that without taking the time to have that understanding then we're all left victim i joke i went to the car dealer i had a, a car repair that needed to be done i'm such a girl when it comes to the cars right and i go in and the dealer says this is broken i go oh, okay fix it and that leaves me in a really big victim place as a consumer yes it does <laughs> Thanks for rubbing that in. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Don't don't worry about it. Um, no, but it's like, and even, um, but you know, for young people growing. So, you know, what's your thought in terms of people getting um, a master's degree in business, like an MBA, versus working their way up in a lot of businesses um, to understand from the inside out the level of detail versus you go, you sit in the classroom, they give you all the theoretical, um, but you may or may they don't necessarily have the hands-on knowledge. Well, I would not deter anybody from becoming an, an MBA. -er. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't see how it could hurt. But I think as long as they don't get bogged down in the uh, in the environment they're in, and let me give you an example. Uh, you probably noticed in the book I talk about the idea of risk and. You find most MBA people have a tendency to go towards working for large companies. Yes. In my opinion, working for a large company can sometimes, or most times, be riskier than having your own business. Wow, that's uh, an interesting statement. For example, you could be a very good employee in your department, but your department, because of a department head, doesn't do well. Or your department does well, but your division doesn't do well. Or the division does well, but the company doesn't do well, and all of a sudden it's sold out from under you. I mean, that's a pretty risky situation. The great thing about owning your own business is, first of all, you can sell it, and of course you can't sell a job. Uh, it can become a very, very valuable asset. Secondly, if you have someone in your family, an heir, a daughter, a son, or somebody like that, that you want to pass the business on to, you can do that. Well, you can't do that with a job working for a larger company. So whether you go in the direction of an MBA, I think is irrelevant relative to the decision, do I want to be an 
entrepreneur or don't I? Do you think the entrepreneurs are created or they have it in their DNA? Well, here's my theory on that. I, I think people, most people, especially people in, 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 in public type jobs like sales jobs and so forth, think about being in business all the time. Uh, some of them have the capability and skill set to make it happen and some don't. But what you can do with entrepreneurs, let's say you have a skill set of one, one out of ten as an entrepreneur. With a little work and experience, you might be able to build that skill set up to a four or five. Or if you're a three, you might be able to build it up to a seven or an eight. Or if you're a five, up to a ten. Okay? Depending on the individual and their desire and their interest level and being an entrepreneur. So I wouldn't say they're either born or not born. I would say that they can be developed over time. And you can do the same thing with employees if you want them to be entrepreneurial in your company, too, as well. Yeah, although that's, I mean, there's there's this there's a, a need for risk taking and an ability, you know, as an entrepreneur and as a, a leader, you you're bearing a different level as a worker. Some people just want to be, you know, the, the the loyal number one or the, you know the loyal number two that works hard, but they don't want to have to bear all that burden of what happens when the lights go out or what happens when you know the internet goes down or whatever. That, and probably we should be thankful that there are both kinds of personalities. I'm always grateful that there are. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I always like hiring a mix of them. Some of them you want a, you want a bunch of eager people who want to grow, and I love hiring people that just want to do their jobs and do their jobs well and put in a good hard day's work. Absolutely. Um, let's go back to detail for a second. You had some um, some the importance of details in negotiation. You had some examples in the book about you know the more you know about um, either your prospect or, you know, your competitor in a negotiation, the more power that you had. Absolutely. And I guess this all comes under the heading of due diligence. Uh, due diligence of the situation, whether or not you're negotiating to buy a company or to sell a product or a service at a large scale or even a small scale. The more information you have, the better off you're going to be in making a positive negotiation process. Uh, there's just uh, no remedy for becoming involved in the negotiation without understanding your customer or your potential acquirer. Uh, there's just no excuse for it. You've got to do, you have as much knowledge as you possibly can about that situation. Now, sometimes it's not possible to get all the knowledge that you need, but you got to do the best you can. I know Paychex has been involved in some acquisitions. I wish we had done a better job of due diligence and understanding the, the company we were acquiring. Uh, sometimes it has to do with this, the skill of the management of the company, or sometimes it has to do with the marketplace of the company, or the, even their customer base. You, you talk also about the importance of curiosity, which ties into this. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, the more curious you are, then the more you, the more deeply you'll understand and get to those details. Yeah, I like the, I like to, I think I described in the book, uh, walking into a business, let's call it a retail business, looking at the product line, and let's say it's a, it sells games, you know, children's games, adult games, that crafts, those types of things, trying to make a quick, uh, criteria of what is the 
average sale that they sell, what is their overhead, how many customers have to come into the door and buy on a daily basis to figure out if they can become profitable. I think good entrepreneurs, wherever they go, whatever business they visit, they do that. Even from big department stores to little mom-pop uh, you know, uh, cigar stand or cigarette stand. I think that's what makes entrepreneurship interesting, and that's what makes better entrepreneurs, to constantly be analyzing businesses as to whether or not they're profitable, whether or not they have growth potential, and whether or not they have sustainability. Yes, constantly evaluating. All right, let's talk about the human side of you, because you have, you were telling me a story before we started recording about just a, you know, kind of a, this is a story that's in the book about a joke that you played on a, on a coworker. Um, there's a there's a big human side. You know, you're very, very serious. You were really hardcore business person, but you also allowed a lot of humanity um, into your workplace. Uh, Talk about that. Well, I'm not sure I know what you mean by humanity. I mean, I know what humanity means, but I'm not sure. Well, you were you you were let your you know you were playful as well. Um, oh, absolutely. You know why? I like to have fun. <laughs> I, I really do like to have fun, and I want employees and the people around me to have fun too. Now, I don't want it to do it at the expense of doing quality work, but if they're doing quality work, what's wrong with having some fun along with it? And I've been known as to be a little bit of a prankster, um, and uh, I think it helps create uh, just a more joyful, more fun atmosphere. And I've also been the victim. <laughs> I'll tell you one story that I think is uh, kind of interesting. Um, we have a very extensive training program in, in Paychex in Rochester, New York, and we, I was speaking to a group of salespeople, graduates, who had come to the training for three weeks, and it's the final day of their school, and I'm doing a you know luncheon presentation, a, sort of a uh, state of the company address to the people, and I'm talking talking to him, and all of a sudden, there's this loud noise in the back of the room, and it's a woman and dressed in a janitorial uniform vacuuming the floor. And I said, what are you doing? Well, I'm making this kind of presentation, so I went over to her, and I told her to shut the machine off and get out of the room. I no sooner did that, I go back to my presentation, and now she's outside washing the glass windows <laughs> on the conference room. So I had to go out and deal with that. And I did that, and then I look at into our cafeteria, and there's our whole training department laughing their tails off. Oh man! <laughs> so they they knew how to get even with me. Well, I love that you were that accessible to your team. You know that they felt comfortable enough to be able to play with you in that way as well. I hope so. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, so. meanwhile though, so you had some interesting ways when you interview people. Again, it's not just you talk about that attitude is far more important than their skill set because skill set can be taught, but what's their attitude? And you had some interesting, I'll call it tests, that you that you met, you measure people on when you interview them. Well, I think uh, I want people to come into work for our organization that are polite, they're mannerly, they're professional. And when uh, somebody comes into my office, let's say they're interviewing for a job, and I ask them if they would like a cup of coffee or a glass of water, and they say yes. And my assistant will come in with the coffee or the water, hand it to the person, and they just take it and don't say anything to them, like, thank you. 
uh, I consider that a negative. The worst one is with when they leave and they put their coffee cup, empty coffee cup on my desk and leave and expect me to take care of it. Uh, that just shows a lack of manners and a lack of uh, respect. So uh, I admit it's one of the criteria that somebody comes into my office for an interview of that type that they uh, act in a respectful way towards me and the organization. Yeah. It's funny. I always have a, a game where I will interrupt someone else's interview just to see how so- Handles handles themselves. Oh, yeah. so do they, do yeah. they sit there like wood? Do they engage? Do they like, how just to, to try and see what they, their temperament is? Good tip. <laughs> you got to play these. You know, it's it's anyone can practice these easy answers like well you know tell me your skill set, but it's it's trying to call out like who the human is because really you're going to be working with the human, not their not their data. Um, okay. You um what was I going to say? Um, you're also big about personal appearance you know, and clean workspaces. You would you you clean off people's desks for uh, Paychex is a company that provides a very professional, valuable service, and I think your organization, the people in it, have to be organized. They have to be disciplined and structured if they're going to deliver a appropriate quality level of service. So why wouldn't you want the place to be neat, the people to be professional appearing? Uh, one of the reasons, obviously, is as a public company, we have stock analysts that come in to visit with us all the time. We want them to see a professional, well-disciplined organization. So yes, I do insist on it. And once in a while, the place would uh, get you know not as neat as it should be. And at 5:30, I'd walk through some of the offices and. If uh, the desks were all just piled up with papers, I'd just take my hand and swoop them into the wastebasket. And all I had to do to do it to two or three people, it would get around the company so fast, it would take care of us for another six months. But we think it was very important to present a very professional image to everybody to come to visit us, including all the employees from out of town. I mean, Paycheck today has 16,000 employees, 11,000 of them live outside of Rochester, New York. When they come to visit for training or for whatever, we want them to be exposed to a professional, well-disciplined, structured organization. Do you have to train new employees in what I'll call business etiquette or just basic etiquette, given that there seems to be a lack of it, a lack of that, you know, those kind of values in, in today's homes? Well, I, 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 I want to totally agree with that. Uh, in our training program, we certainly uh, work with our employees that are giving payroll services direct to the, our clients that they treat them in a very professional uh, and uh, knowledgeable way. So, yeah, it's very, very important. I mean, if you're a company and you own a, you own a company, you want a payroll service that you can depend on. And... Every way you can demonstrate that skill, you're better off. Yeah. Clients can well, be a lot happier. Well, I mean, even some of the basics, like you said, you won't hire someone if they don't say please and thank you. Um, and writing a thank you note, like just some, some basic um, phone skills. A lot of people, that, you know, younger people that are growing up with what I fondly call the bat phone <laughs> because they don't have to pick up the phone anymore and say, hi, Mrs. Smith, may I please speak to Susie? So teach 
practicing some of those basic skills, or are you finding that people are coming in and they have those skills already? Uh, let's just say we need to refine them. <laughs> uh, and obviously, with as many employees we have, you're going to find all kinds of levels of quality in that environment. So we work very hard trying to refine them to get them all up to a to a good level of uh, uh, deployment. Do you think in society today that we're we're losing a little bit of stability, and how can we can we bring that back? Well, I'll tell you where I think we're losing it. Math skills, education. Uh, the standards that Paychex had in 1980, for example, for hiring employees with math logic skills uh, is significantly higher than our standards today. And the reality of life is, the reality of the situation is people don't have the math skills, the math logic skills that they had 30, 40 years ago, even 20 years ago. So, Why do you think that's so in such a tech-driven world? Or is it because we all have calculators now? That could be. That that could be a lot to do with it. Um, I don't know. Maybe the new math also makes life so difficult and so confusing. It, at least it does for me. Uh, but people cannot equal the levels of math skills, math logic skills that they used to 30 or 40 years ago. And to me, it's very obvious, and I'll bet you you asked me to prove it, I could prove it very easily. No, I'll believe it. Do you give you people tests? Yes, like we do. Formal tests to come in? No, we'd, we'd give a math logic test to yeah. all potential new employees. Yeah. I see an increasing number of companies that are giving some form of test or another. We've always done editing tests when we, when we bring editors in. I find it hard to test for a marketing position. Um, but I know my girls both had to do some pretty tough testing before they got their jobs. Well, in the case of Paychex, potential service givers and sales and sales management people all have to have good math or arithmetic skills uh, because, you know, we're putting that clients onto a payroll service many times. We have to convert the client's uh, yearly records onto a new system, onto our system, and that requires a set of skills that's absolutely necessary so that the client is in balance and his year-end reports will be appropriately uh, accurate. It's very important to us, uh, and of course to the payroll service givers, our payroll specialists, they have to be able to uh, communicate with our clients and deal with uh, numbers and math logic. Small detail, right? <laughs> um, so let's talk about the power of silence. That's something that I learned years ago, and I love your, your examples in the book and, and your use of it in the book about using silence strategically. Tell me about it. I'm using you on it right now. <laughs> I could hear what oh no, did the phone go dead? Uh oh. <laughs> uh, let's uh, take the sales situations for example. You probably have had salespeople talk to you maybe about buying a car or selling you a car. Uh, there comes a point in the conversation where the salesperson generally stops talking and waits for the prospect to uh, communicate either an objection or a desire to buy or a downright no, okay? The salesperson should be trained well enough to find that point where he just stops talking and waits for the client or potential client to react. 
Now, if the client comes out with objections, he can respond to those objections. But if the salesperson doesn't give the client an opportunity to tell him how he feels or she feels, he's not going to be able to know what those objections might be. So I find too many situations where salespeople just don't know when to shut up and to let the sales or let the potential customer talk. Now I think that works in the negotiation too. For example, if you're negotiating the, the price of something, at some point somebody has to stop the conversation and allow the thoughts to come out. So my advice in those situations is just make sure you give your person on the other side of the desk or whatever the process is, an opportunity to talk. And you'll find out what they're thinking and probably give you a better opportunity to close the deal, whatever it might be. Yeah, and I find that you find that in, in, in all interactions, you know, humans have this, people are uncomfortable with silence. So if you force the silence, then generally the other person will feel obligated to fill it. Right. And whether it's in a negotiation, if you're having a, a deep conversation with somebody, an intense conversation with somebody at home, that, you know, if you leave that, that silence, they will continue talking and you might unpeel more, more information about them. And very important in job interviews. Um, the interviewing person, uh, the interviewer, should find spots and time during the interview where they just don't say anything and just let the let the uh, applicant ramble on. Yeah, yeah. I find also in customer service, like if you're a customer and you need something out of customer service, being silent like forces them to come back at you a little more. Absolutely. And you said, so how do you respond? If somebody silences you, what do you do? Well, first thing I do is I understand what's going on, generally speaking. <laughs> can <laughs> and, can uh, anyone out silence you? <laughs> well, let me tell you one story. <laughs> okay. Uh, when I owned the Buffalo Sabres hockey team, I got into a situation with the general manager where he had made a very serious mistake in contract negotiations and it cost the company a quarter of a million dollars in extra payroll. That was totally unnecessary. So when I confronted him and a couple of his counterparts uh, down here in Florida about this problem that happened, uh, I brought it up, I expanded on the problem my definition of what had happened, and then I stopped talking. We sat there for 45 minutes without a word being said. Oh, my gosh. That's a lot. Four people in a small room, maybe 10 by 10. Finally, the general manager who had made the serious mistake said to me, Tom, if you want me to reimburse you for the loss, I will do it. I said, no. No thanks, Darce. I just wanted to have you acknowledge that the mistake was made. Let's go on on to something more important now. Wow. But wow. that was uh, probably the worst 45 minutes of everybody's life in that room. Did you ask him afterward why it took him 45 minutes to fess up? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if, if he's an employee, and for him to come up with that amount of money, right? Uh, because of the mistake he. I'm sure it required a lot of thought on his part. Yeah, but even like he could have fessed up and acknowledged the mistake without having to offer the money. 
Like I said, it took him that long to say, I'm sorry, I blew it. It's interesting. Uh, it did. It did. Yeah. So you like to have, you know, when you negotiate, even though you're, you know, we're talking about all these kind of tough tactics, you actually like to make sure that everybody wins the negotiation. I don't see how you can have a successful negotiation without both parties thinking they've won something or, you know, have come out with it uh, being somewhat equal. If you've got one person that feels they've been really taken advantage of, uh, chances are the deal's not going to survive. Or the people are going to be so unhappy at, at some later point it will it'll cost someone. Just if you want to be successful with people and successful in business, you've got to be able to create environments where both parties think they have won and eventually have won, uh, or else they shouldn't be doing the deal. If you're taking full advantage of somebody and they realize that they're not going to accept your deal, they well, the thing- begin to realize that the, there's something in it for them, and, and it's a good deal for them as well as a good deal for you. Yeah, well, I always say I want you to be in business a year or two years from now, now or five years from now. That it does me no good if I squeeze you that tightly and you're not in business. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to make it that much more difficult for you in the next situation, too. Yeah. Now, you even use your – go ahead. Well, I find, you know, if people have a too high a regard for my negotiation ability, not necessarily that I have it, but they think I have it, they get very defensive and they get their back up, meaning they, uh, you know, they're concerned, they're scared, they're, they don't want to walk into a trap. It makes it even harder to negotiate with them. So if they get the impression that you're on the level, you talk straight, you're being honest and uh, working with integrity, you're going to get a lot further along than if you use a hard tactic. Yeah, that's a really great point. Their, their, their guards are down, and you can have a better conversation. Now, you successfully negotiated your divorces this way. Oh, nice of you to bring that up. <laughs> I mean, in a good way. Again, everybody, you know, all, all business people are people, too, and they have to deal with everything. So, yes, you did. You put it in the book. Yes, I did. And uh, quite frankly, I think there's a serious lesson there. Uh, I've had three divorces. I paid the legal fees for both parties and the first divorce and the second divorce. I paid the legal fees for myself in the third divorce. And the grand total of legal fees for those three divorces for me was less than $6,000. That's crazy. I didn't think you could use legal Zoom for that price. I didn't use legal Zoom. I sat down at the kitchen table with my spouse and I said, Let's work this out. Let's not get lawyers involved. They just, you know, create adversarial environments and friction and hatred and so on and so forth. Let's you and I figure it out. And we did. I I did not have a prenup with the first marriage. I did have a prenup with the second and third. Uh, So that helped. But there was still a lot of negotiation that went on to it. And uh, actually, I think all three spouses came out pretty well. Well, and again, you were looking for the long game that you need this to work long, long term versus just, you know, let me let me see what I can get out of you in the at the moment, and that's never a successful strategy. Correct. Yeah, and we're we're good friends for the most part today. Wow, kudos to you. 
Any other pearls that you'd like to share before I let you go? Pearls? Well, uh, here's something a little bit on the negative side, and it's just part of a philosophy I have. You know, in many organizations, there's always somebody in the organization that may create negative energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, either they complain too much, they're not as productive as they should, uh, they just don't have good attitudes towards their coworkers and so forth. My advice to people who are in that situation, get rid of that negative energy as soon as you can. Uh, first of all, it, it, it really hurts productivity, it hurts the business atmosphere, the office atmosphere, the factory atmosphere, whatever it is. Uh, I'll give you an example in, in the Buffalo Sabres hockey team that I own. Our leading scorer was a, uh, an individual who had great capability, but he was almost a loner, and he was able to be the leading scorer on the team because he hung around the net all the time instead of going into the corners and fighting like the rest of the guys had to. That created negative energy. The, the rest of the players didn't appreciate him and didn't really want to work with him. We got rid of that negative energy at the end of that seat, that first season, and the team went on to become very successful. Now, there were a lot of other factors in the success, but the fact that we got rid of the negative energy on the team was very, very important to the success of the organization. So if you have employees in your company that are negative energy, you probably know who they are. You probably should try your best to move them on out. Well, I like that, and I like that lesson, but I can't leave now on a negative thing, so let's flip that, though. I think just reinforce This is my, my thing of the week is that, you know, with all the conversations about coronavirus, it's a very stressful time, and then we all get left panicked. So I'm try, I want to try to end things on positive notes, not Pollyannish, but something that feels good. But I think that this story is super important, and I think we all have those people at our organizations, um, which then reinforces your view of, having great team players, great people who have personal integrity, follow through on what they want, good attitudes, good spirit, good etiquette is critical to to building that team for the long term. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously what's very important in building any organization is developing longevity in your employees. So if you can create an atmosphere of productivity, of enjoyment, fun, and I don't mean to use that term loosely. I think it's very, very important that the that environment be positive and productive. And it makes the whole world a difference. Absolutely. All right. Well, Tom Galatano, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Your book, Built Not Born, is fabulous. And everybody can learn more about you and your work at TomGalatano.com. So thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure, Sarah. Take care now. All right. I'm talking to Tom Galasano, founder and chairman of Paychex, about his lessons as a business leader, entrepreneur, and major philanthropist. In his new book, Built Not Born, Tom talks about the many details that matter on all levels of life, at home and at work. Things like the importance of knowing precisely what is happening in every area of your business, why it's critical to care about all sides winning in a negotiation, and why it's crucial to put your best face forward at all times. Tom's just one example of the types of highly successful and knowledgeable experts who are featured in every issue of Bottom Line Personal. His message is just one from the thousands of experts featured in our twice-monthly newsletter who provide their expert advice to guide readers into action in their own lives. 
In addition to Tom's insights into being more successful at home and work, Bottom Line Personal is filled with actionable advice on all aspects of your life, including traveling safer and cheaper, having a better marriage, finding the best insurance, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, secrets for getting and staying fit, and even travel to little-known destinations. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips of all time from our experts. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.